everyone, and welcome to Potter Clarkson's podcast, The Innovation Game. It's the second in our series of podcasts. Uh, Potter Clarkson is a leading European IP firm, and I am an IP solicitor. I'm uh, very pleased to be joined today by Emmy Hunt and Harrison Lee. Uh, Emmy's a, a partner in the trademark team in Potter Clarkson, and Harrison Lee is a senior associate in that team. And we have got together today to talk about a recent case which has just come out from the General Court regarding trademarks for monopoly. Harrison, I know you've read the case in quite a lot of detail. Can you give us a background on the case and tell us what it's all about? Thanks, Mark. Uh, before I go on to the case, I think you might have given me a uh, an intentional promotion there. I should probably just clarify that I'm an associate at Pot Clarkson. Um, however, back to the case. So, the case involved Hasbro and relates to one of its registrations for the trademark Monopoly. Hasbro was appealing uh, the partial revocation of its registration, um, given that the EU Intellectual Property Office had previously determined that the mark had been registered in bad faith for what is known as evergreening. It should be recalled that in the UK and EU, trademark registrations benefit from a five-year grace period before they can be challenged on the grounds of non-use. Evergreening is the practice of circumventing the requirement to file proof of use by filing replacement applications for the same mark and the same goods and services in order to constantly keep the, the registration within a five-year grace period. In upholding the earlier decision of the EUIPO, the General Court made some really interesting points, including, whilst refiling is not in of itself prohibited, it can be an indication of bad faith. Even a short extension of the grace period, in this case it was a eight months with respect to some of the goods, um, can constitute bad faith. Hasbro's arguments that refiling introduced efficiencies beyond simply the, uh, overcoming the requirement to file evidence of use were not deemed to be persuasive. In fact, the General Court took the view that, if anything, refiling led to more administrative burden, uh, more marks to maintain, pay renewal fees for, etc., and a final interesting point was that the court took account of uh, Hasbro's enforcement practices. They essentially noted that Hasbro had successfully opposed some third-party trademarks on the basis of this new registration and that they succeeded because the new registration could not be put to proof of use. All in all, I think it's a really interesting case that could have some uh, big implications going forward. So did they give uh, Hasbro an opportunity to, in effect, show that they could have proven use for those older marks? Um, and therefore, the purpose of the new filings wasn't in order to avoid or just to avoid the need to prove use um, in those marks and, and, and evergreen by um, introducing new marks onto the register. So... It didn't really come down to whether they could put prove um, use of those marks. In fact, I think they made quite the bold claim in the in defence of their registration that it would be um, it's almost a preposterous suggestion that they hadn't made use of the, the monopoly mark in respect to board games and the like. You know, they're given you know it's one in their words one of the most well known games in the world. So um, they were quite bold in making those statements. 
But I think what counted against them is probably sort of the last point I made that actually there'd been some cases where they'd succeeded on the basis of the newer registration that couldn't be put to proof of use. And that I think counted particularly against them. It's also important to note that bad faith comes in from the point of filing it. So bad faith takes effect. The new registration means at the point it was filed, it can't constitute being in bad faith. So therefore, you can't sort of recover that position by saying, oh, but we could have provided proof of use, not not with respect to the new registration, that is. Absolutely understood. I I, I suppose in my head, I thought if, if you, if Hansbro could have shown that they had that proof of use available, then it would have helped support their argument that their motivation wasn't to avoid collating proof of use information, but uh, take the point. Emmy, it, it, it feels to me that uh, two things. One is uh, evergreening is common, that this is what people do, and maybe that it is more likely where brands such as Monopoly are very confident in their their reputation, uh, that maybe they are more likely to take the eye off, their eye off the ball in relation to proving use. Everybody knows Monopoly, so they forget to put the effort in that's needed. I think that's true. I think some of it is that they're they're economising on having to um, collect and order what would probably be quite a large amount of evidence. There is an administrative burden that goes with it. Um, And it's interesting, actually, that Hasbro, in in their pleadings, they they said that the filing strategy that they had followed in Evergreening was common in the industry. Um, and that they'd acted on on the advice of counsel in refiling their trademark application. So it does raise some interesting implications in terms of what um, what we as advisors recommend to clients in terms of those filings, if it's then going to be questioned in these types of proceedings. But I think it's um, in terms of whether it is whether it is a common filing strategy. I think it has become um, more commonplace, and I think it, it does raise some interesting questions, doesn't it? Because the trademark register is, I think, as we're all starting to experience, is, is becoming very very cluttered. Um, there's, you know, there's a huge number of marks, particularly in certain classes, and it's very, very difficult for new entrants into the market to, to register trademarks and, um, and, and to create new brands. And I think that the, the evergreening issue is, is part of it, that um, it's, it's, avoiding, um, it's avoiding the cleaning up of the register, that by evergreening marks, um, that, you know, proprietors are effectively immunising themselves against any sort of attack for revocation. And by doing that, it, it allows um, it allows them to, to basically clog the register and exert a, a, a monopoly um, in this case too um, against proprietors who um, you know probably have a fair claim to enter the market but are just unable to do it because of the because of the trademark situation. I think that's a, that's a really interesting point, and it, it's a point I'm going to come back to. I just wanted to ask you in relation to that. Uh, or ask either of you. We had a case a, a, a few years ago where where McDonald's did put evidence together of use uh, in relation to Big Mac. And no doubt everybody knows about a uh, Big Mac. Maybe it says too much about me that I presume that everybody knows what a Big Mac is, <laughs> but I do. Um, th- I think that also speaks to the difficulty that um, that brand, brand owners have in proving, these, proving use in these situations and might have pushed people more to an evergreening policy in order to avoid that difficulty. Is, is, is that a fair assumption? I would agree there is a a, a certain amount of um, registry-led um, practice that has resulted from this. But I wouldn't necessarily say it's so much from the non-use provisions. I think an initial problem that they found with this, um, and in the EU and the UK it's a particular problem, is that you can essentially file the trademark for whatever you want for the first five years. And 
there's no other that yes in the uk you have to have a bona fide intention to use but that's never really tested which therefore means you can have very very broad specifications which then uh, a client particularly a big client they might want to keep having that broad specification because it's a very important mark for them but in reality they probably don't deserve that breadth of protection because actually so we take big mac as the example yeah we all know a big mac and it's a, probably a very reputable mark but reputation provides an additional avenue for enforcement for mcdonald's anyway and when you look at mcdonald's application it covers many things they're not really selling under big mac so they're selling you know i, I believe there it covers things like cheese now yes their burger contains cheese but they're certainly not selling a big mac flavored cheese um and i think this is the problem that whilst yes the non-use requirements are can be difficult to overcome and there certainly is a question of how a big entity that has lots and lots of marks maintains its records and but i do think this actually comes down to a larger question of parties filing very broad specifications wanting to still maintain that protection somewhat artificially and then not being happy that oh they can't provide proof of use five years later well sort of one leads to the other if you just applied for what you really were going to use it for you'd probably find demonstrating proof of use is a, a fair bit easier in that regard I, I suppose that that point which which i take um although i think in in my view it depends on the nature of your business and how easily you can predict what you're planning to do in the next five years um but it it pulls us back to the Skykick series of cases that have been keeping the courts uh, both in Europe uh, and the UK busy over the, over the last few years. And, and that's another question of bad faith and whether or not companies applying for marks that are clearly beyond the scope of their intentions should have those marks revoked for, uh, or invalidated for bad faith. I, I don't know, Amy, is, is that um, something that you you think or have a view on? It is really interesting, isn't it, that bad faith over the last few years has become such a hot topic. And this is just the latest in a whole chain of cases where I would say that maybe five, five or six years ago, we just didn't we didn't think of bad faith as being particularly widely um, utilised. It, it, it wasn't a useful way of challenging um, someone's registration. But now it seems all of these avenues have opened to, are open to us um, to look at what was really going on at the time of filing. Um, and what the motivations might have been of the applicant at the time. And I think it's really um, it's really sort of bringing home, isn't it, that, that what was happening at the time of filing needs to be recorded somewhere. And we need to be sort of mindful at the time of filing new applications, why we're filing it, why we're filing for the specifications that we are, um, whether there are existing registrations, because they might, there might be existing registrations that we don't even know about. You can be inadvertently evergreening. Um, and then you know all with a view to in five ten years time you enforcing your mark and all of this being called into question and i think one of the other interesting things that happened in monopoly is that there was a, there was an oral hearing um that, that looked at the motivation of um, why why the applications were filed and you know oral hearings just don't ever happen at the uipo but it does make me think now that um you know you have uh, that might be the opportunity um, at which um, your your motivations will be called into question, and we might end up seeing more hearings at the EYPA just to try and get to the bottom of what what you were doing at the time of filing, why you were doing it, and and, and whether you can sort of even recall any of this information. I, I think I think that's right, Emmy, and that's interesting. I think it's uh, it's another step that needs to occur for. Uh, practitioners and for uh, for companies that file a lot of marks is, is 
auditing the process and, and the thought process and making sure that those are legitimate because there can be legitimate reasons for, for these. Um, I wanted to pick up a little bit on, on the point earlier in relation to this issue of the, the registry becoming overcrowded. And partly, uh, it's my recollection that the uh, EU has always provided that you pay the same price for three classes of goods and services. And that's encouraged people to where they know very specifically that they want their mark registered for a particular good or service that they are intending to bring to market or already have on market. It's encouraged them to widen the specification and, and to have their marks cover more ground than maybe they should. It, it, it almost feels like the the EU IPO is, is kind of uh, made a monster and is now trying to pull it back with, with bad faith, which maybe is a little, a little unfair. I don't know, Harrison, if you've got a, a view on that. Yeah, I mean, the three class, the, so automatic same price for three as it was for one, did change uh, sort, of, sort of in the re- relatively recent um, past. So now it has gone back to just sort of one class and additional fee per class thereafter. Mm. But I think the whole point remains, actually. I think the, the, the question still stands because the additional cost for additional classes is not particularly significant. So even though there is now a cost, it's, you know, if you were mindful of just going for as broad a protection as you can, it's not prohibitive to have additional classes unless you're a very small entity. And this matter, I don't think we're talking really about small entities generally evergreening. It's probably the, uh, I say, bigger entities. Um, and yeah, I agree. I, I think it did. But whilst it did exist, it certainly wasn't helping. And I think they are certainly in a patch now where it's going to take a number of years to trim the register down. And uh, I mean, perhaps we're moving that way, but as I said, it's still not that expensive, so you can do it. I mean, uh, th- thanks for clarifying and shows how, la- <laughs> how long ago since I had to do that. But um, I-, I also note that in the UK, you uh, have to file a declaration of an intention to use, but the EU doesn't expect you to have to do that. Uh, so it might be that um, we see a divergence in the approach that's taken from the UK and the EU post uh, post Brexit, and I I got the feeling from Skykick that that would be something that uh, the UK judges would be keen on. But I, I don't know, Emmy. You know, you you manage worldwide portfolios. I know the US system is very different. Do you think that's where we're going to end up? If you could tell us a little bit about the US system, do you think we'll move yeah. towards that, or will the EU keep, despite all of this, keep resisting that? We keep talking about it, don't we? So the US system requires you to file a declaration of use and provide specimens of that use um, periodically in order to maintain your registration. So you'd be looking at filing um, a a declaration of use five years after registration. So that's obviously in line with our five-year grace period in the UK and EU. And I think that there is is regular talk about introducing a US-style system um, where where, we, where you have to positively maintain your registration by showing use rather than, as it currently is, you wait until you're challenged. Um, and there's obviously a really key benefit to it, which is that it's very clear on the face of the register what the scope of people's rights are. So when you're clearing marks or trying to introduce new brands into the market, you can look at the state of the register and you automatically know that, you know, get within that period of five years, whether that mark is being used or not and how legitimate any claim against your use might be. 
um, which I think is, you know, the common problem in the UK and EU that a newcomer to the market simply doesn't know on the face of the register whether those marks are enforceable against them or not. And it takes quite a lot of additional time and expenditure to find out. So I think that there is a benefit to the US system. Having said that, it's an incredibly different system. Um, and I think that there's a real sort of a, a pushback to changing our practices, you know, so widely um, and to, to moving towards a system which is so different to what we used to. Um, of course, the other aspect of the US system, which is so different to ours, is the uh, the very specific wording that has to be used in specifications. So it would, um, if we move to a US system where we also employed that, then it would also, you know, we, we would eliminate sort of very broad wording. So you wouldn't be able to have clothing, for example, you would have to itemise your clothing into T-shirts and shorts and all of that kind of thing. And that can be helpful too. So, I mean, when we talk about the US system, I suppose we could we could take a bit of a pick and mix approach, couldn't we? We could either go for that sort of maintenance obligation or look at a higher degree of specification in the goods and services. And I think either one of those would be helpful. Um, but I still think it might be unpalatable, I think, to, to brand owners in the UK who are very used to the way that we've always done things with broad specification. Thanks, Amy. I'm aware of the time. And uh, whilst I'm uh, happy to spend hours talking about trademarks, I'm not sure everybody would be happy to spend hours listening. Um, it feels like for me, the, the, the takeaway from what you have told me is, uh, or one of those takeaways, is that people need to take use seriously, not presume uh, evergreening is going to work for them, and because you might end up with rights that you think you can enforce because they are within the five-year grace period and they can't um, because of these bad faith arguments that will appear more and more as those marks are enforced. And also not to be not to presume that all of the trademark systems operate in the same way, that we, uh, we're applying similar rules in different ways or the same rules in different ways, and, and, and that can lead to quite significant changes. Is that a fair... A fair assessment and are there any other things that uh, that people can bear in mind or should bear in mind in, in light of specifically the Hasbro monopoly case but um, th these developments? I mean I think that is a, a fair assessment. Um, I think that, that covers one of the many of the conclusions that I think can be taken from the case. I think one uh, I think particular aspect that I think is also worth noting and sort of appending onto that is the how perhaps um, owners enforce their rights. I think that was a very noted point in the decision that actually the practice of relying on the new registration to take action where you have the older rights that could be put to proof of use was one of the factors indicating bad faith. And I think, I mean, you'll, you'll know this, um, Mark, obviously in your field, but I, I'll be curious to see how people decide to enforce their rights going forward and if they have to be mindful of that, about not you know, filing new ones and then just relying on the new marks so as to avoid it, because I think that could well turn, in turn bite them because um, it could be as evidence of bad faith. I think that's absolutely right. And that's going to be very interesting when you, you put that together with the pressure that you might get, let's say, in uh, in IPEC, where there is a focus on choosing your best mark and uh, not taking up unnecessary court time with other marks which aren't really adding anything to the argument. So when going through that process, it, it feels to me that the claimants will need to say, um, yes, this might be the best mark, but 
is that going to lead to a suspicion that I've chosen that mark because it's in the grace period? Should I run another mark as well that is the same mark but with slightly different specification just to show that I can prove use and I'm not using that one for bad faith purposes? But, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Emmy, I uh, don't know if you've got any kind of final remarks on all of this. Yeah, well, I, I, I agreed with your summary as well. I think there was one other point which I, I thought was also worth um, worth noting, which is that, you know, this is obviously bringing, bringing some question of sort of the timing of your use. Um, it, it's it's going to become more important to evaluate what your likely timing is of commencing use of your mark when you, when you go about filing it. So, you know, obviously industries where there is a long lead time to actually getting your product onto the market. So the pharmaceutical industry is a is an obvious example. You need to be bearing that in mind at the time of registering your mark, that if you're not going to be able to show use and your mark is going to become vulnerable before you're able to show use, then there might be an advantage to holding off from filing because you're not going to be able to necessarily benefit from the evergreening, which which might it might have been you know the, your way out of that problem previously. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? I know pharmaceutical companies do have lots of marks ready uh, mm. as they go through the, the approval systems that are necessary to launch pharmaceutical uh, products, both from a, a, a trademark and a naming sense and obviously from a, a pharmaceutical and medical sense. I, I suppose that might be a challenge for them because that feels to me that something that is inherently not bad faith uh, to file those marks and have them there, but to enforce them is when that will get tested. Uh, and if you are a pharmaceutical company with a 10-year-old mark that you've never used, but you're enforcing it, then yeah, you you may well be vulnerable now. I can imagine so, but I also, I'm, it is also interesting, isn't it, that because bad faith is developing so rapidly over the last few years, that I can well imagine that these sorts of circumstances might be seen before the courts, and and you know various exceptions might be made and that kind of thing. And of course, the other thing is that you know there is still further appeal for for Hasbro in this particular case so we might still see an appeal in the monopoly decision um I, I don't know you know what the CJU might might make of an appeal um but it is something to keep um to keep monitoring and and, and the whole the whole circumstances around bad faith and, and what that might mean I think is still um susceptible to quite a lot of change over the next over the next few years really as a yes as a f- I agree sorry Harrison I- that's all right. I was just going to say as a final thought, actually, I don't know what either of you think of this. It, it just occurred to me. Um, but in, in the pharmaceutical situation, do you, I, part of me wonders whether uh, a pharmaceutical entity might decide to file it in a stylized form first, giving them not quite as broad rights, but then once they actually know they're going to launch it, or it's far more, you know, in more of the immediate, you know, one to three years rather than five plus years away, then filing their word mark name so that, yes, they, because it's important to remember with this, that evergreening only relates to the identical mark. So therefore filing a, a new application in a word form, if you've only got a logo previously or vice versa, won't be caught by this requirement. So perhaps companies have to start thinking strategically about what the first mark they file and perhaps they file a slightly weaker mark in order to be able to in the pharmaceutical scenario file their stronger mark later when they know it's going to be in use and defendable and so, so I, I suppose i have a quick response to that one is the principles of bad faith that are in hasbro could equally apply to doing something where you're trying to evergreen it in a slightly different way because it's it's all about the intentions of the parties at the time of filing. I don't think it's uh, 
I don't think it's plausible for someone to extrapolate that. And you're shaking your head, Harrison, but I, to extrapolate that and and say, okay, so you filed a word mark and now it's a slightly different mark, but we know you're just seeking to extend the protection of that previous mark. Is that unfair? Slightly, only that the current precedent and obviously Brexit aside and you know what Mr. Mm. Arnold or someone in his camp might make of it is yet to be seen. But currently the precedent for this particular aspect only relates to that same mark. So because otherwise, you, if you apply the evergreening criteria to all marks that we filed, such as that, then you can say, well, if you filed a word mark, then filing your logo some years later or filing a new version of your logo, ah, well, are you just trying to evergreen? Are you actually going to change your your stylization? It could almost become this block that prevents you from re rehashing your mark or rebranding your mark after a number of years. It's, I, I think that at the moment, the precedent only relates to filing the same mark for the same goods and services. Whether that expands is a, an interesting question to go forward, but there would be of, there would be negative connotations if it was to expand as well. I think. I think that that might we might see more challenge to that though, because I suspect that we might end up seeing more applications filed by sort of shell companies effectively, um, in order to disguise uh, possible evergreening. So I, I think that um, I think that the possible ways of circumventing these um, these earlier decisions um, and, and the rules that are sort of, sort of being created very ad hoc around bad faith, um, I think that the, it, it's going to become harder and harder to, to sort of act in bad faith in a way that um, is not immediately obvious. I think people will start looking behind some of this stuff in more detail, it'll become harder to do. But um, but I, I, I like your thinking, Harrison. I think it's um, <laughs> it's a creative solution to quite a tricky problem, isn't it? I think I should state here that I'm not I'm not in any way condoning acting in bad faith. <laughs> it was more just uh, you know what might be a practical solution, uh, particularly for some industries like the pharmaceutical ones, where uh, I think they are faced with limited good options at this point, particularly mm -hmm. if uh, in these situations. Yeah, it's certainly difficult for them to know where they stand right now, isn't it? So thank, thank you both. I mean, I think what's what's definitely clear is that this is a, an evolving area and something that people need to pay attention. And it's probably clear to everyone that we could spend too much time uh, talking about it. But um, to those of you who have uh, stayed with us, thank you very much uh, for listening. Thank you to Harrison and Emmy for uh, that, I thought, very interesting discussion. If you have enjoyed it, there will be more Potter Clarkson podcasts coming your way soon and with that we'll say goodbye thanks harrison thanks emmy thank you thanks mark